Welcome to You Are Not Broken, the only podcast that combines science, medicine, and psychology to re-educate your brain and help you live your best love life. And I'm your host, board-certified female urologist, Dr. Kasperson. Hello again, this is Dr. Vonda Wright, and we are here on Hot for Your Health. And today I am thrilled to be joined by Dr. Kelly Kasperson, who is one of a few in the country, and I'm going to let her tell you about that, urologists. And not only does she have a background in the full field of urology, she has called out the science of women's urology and is really making a huge impact across the country, not only with her work, her surgical work, but with the voice she's given via her podcast, which is called You Are Not Broken, as well as her brand new co-founding of life coaching for surgeons called Common Thread. So we have so much to talk about today. And I love being in front of pioneers like you, Kelly. Can I call you Kelly? Yeah, absolutely. You can call me pioneer. I like that. I can call you pioneer. So pioneer. (laughs) I love that because it takes a certain amount of strength and courage to stand up in the place where we are. And We'll compare urology and orthopedics. And orthopedics, as you know, when I mean, when I started in 1999, there were 3% women. You know, we were truly pioneers. Now there's 6%. And thanks goodness, all the younger women, the millennial women coming into orthopedic surgery are speaking and they're getting things that my generation never had, like, heaven forbid, I have to breastfeed somewhere that's not a locker room or a bathroom, right? Or get more time on my boards or, you know, just things that are basic civil rights or human rights that these women coming after me are getting. So what has it been like in, in urology? Urology, I I think I came into it where I wasn't like the only person, but you still had to be very, you still had to kind of hide your femininity. You had to hide the fact that you were a woman. You just had to be a guy. Mm -hmm. And I, I think now even it's more like be yourself, yourself and it's okay. Oh, I get I get that feeling. Or at least I feel like I can be myself now, so that's how I'm seeing the world. Mm-hmm. But certainly when I think back to training, it was like don't stick out too much. Right. But you know, that's I think that's surgical training in general. Like don't stick out too much. Just put your head down, do the work. That's so. right. Had you always known when you started when you were matching to urology, had you always known that you were going to redefine a field within a field, a subspecialty of the general field of urology into really being the expert in female urology? No. (laughs) Well, first of all, I was never going to be a surgeon, right? Because I had my own preconceived ideas of what surgeons were, and Mm -hmm. I wasn't one of them because I never saw me. I only saw tall white men be surgeons and they weren't nice either. So I wasn't going to be a surgeon, but then I realized you're all, I really like instant gratification. You know, that's what's so nice about surgery. You have a a problem, it's fixed. You go home and you say, look what I did today. And I really like that about surgery. So that's how I kind of ended up into it. I was basically like, I'll do whatever beats this urology rotation because I thought it was so cool. Yeah. I spent all of third year thinking, does this beat urology? No. Does this? No. And I couldn't do ortho. I saw an open tibia and it was very white and shiny and I almost lost my breakfast. So that (laughs) that ended my like foray and nope, it's not going to be ortho. But so in in urology, really the stereotype was is that women are difficult. Women take up too much time. Women aren't where the high paying cases are. So there's a lot of stigma against taking care of women in urology. And It was to the point of like, you can do a fellowship so that you don't have to see women in practice because you're going to see women because you're female. Mm 
Right. And I was like, I don't, I don't want to do two more years of a fellowship. You know, that's fine. And to me now, I'm like, this is the most rewarding part of the whole, I, I still take care of men. I love taking care of men, mm-hmm. but I just, I didn't see, I didn't see what people were saying at all. And then about two years ago, two to three years ago, I had a patient that I ended up treating for bladder cancer mm-hmm. and we cured her from that. And wow. she came back in crying about lack of desire, lack of sex with her husband, loves her husband, but just didn't have that. Right. And I, she's literally crying in my office and I'm like, I have no idea what to do right now. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> and that was probably like five or six years into, you know, being out of residency doing my job. And I'm like, I just always thought there, I was like, there's maybe there's something to do about this, you know? Yeah. And so that was like the beginning of my deep dive. And now like meeting all the people who are mm-hmm. into it and like realizing there's an international society for women's sexual health. I'm like, what, where did this yeah. thing come from? Yeah. Turns out it's been around for 20 years. They need like, better PR, just, my dear. I know people just <laughs> don't know about it. Right. And so it just kept being this like repetitive thing in my office then. And I was like, I had this moment. I'm like, I can't change the world by having people find me and come to my office in Washington state. Like it's not going to work. Yeah. And so that's where the podcast, the voice was like, get out there, get out there, do the podcast. And so, so far I've been one year in 17,000 listens. Wow. That's amazing. You're making a huge impact. Yeah. Like I'll never see that many people in clinic. Never, never. So that's, what's so cool about it. It's really amplified your voice. And for people listening, you know, this podcast is called hot for your health on my side. And I just want to frame what we're talking about, because unless you're in this with us, I mean, you see women on the street, but you don't really understand the magnitude of the opportunity, both health-wise to change people's lives, the cultural opportunity, the economical opportunity. So let's just frame it. 3.8 billion women in the world. In the United States, women are 51.1% of the total population. So we're actually the majority. 40%, and this is the area that I've done all my research in, is longevity and aging. But So that's why I know this statistics. 40% of women are between the ages of 40 and 60, right? So that is a solid third of our life, right? So what does this mean? Well, this means that there is a solid third of women that are going through both physical and hormonal changes that is not a disease, This period of our lives is not a disease. The period between winding down childbearing and truly being retired, it's not a disease. It's a natural flow of life. But the approach has been, oh my gosh, perimenopause, menopause, postmenopause, and all the physical, mental, and social things that go along is being treated like a disease. And I hope that, you know, you and I will hold hands and stand up on a mountaintop and say, this is normal. This is normalized life. And, you know, frankly, I've been through it and I need better products because there is not only a gap when it comes to biotech of VC spending for women, but when you look at where the money is being spent, there's about $2.9 billion from VC being poured into before 40s, femtech, if you will. There's a term that's that's within the last five years in the horizon. Only $445 million is attributed to this 30-degree window in our lives. So it's not just the physical things that I want you to talk more about, what you see and what are the most common things, but it's work productivity. I, You are probably younger than me. You look much younger than me, but I'm going to tell you that when I went through menopause, 
I am used to being really like you. You're a surgeon, really, really smart. I could memorize anything. And it was a brave new world for me to be a little bit brain fuzzy and not, well, I'm used to not sleeping because we were all residents, right? But I am not used to not sleeping when I'm not a resident. And, and so I didn't know diddly. I had to go research all of this for myself. And I wish I had known you, Kelly, when I had my baby and the whole bladder leakage thing happened, Kegels just don't cut it sometimes. So all I'm describing to you is this huge, we can call it a gap, or we could call it the most profound opportunity we're going to have to change the lives of women in this world. So what do you think about that framework? What has been your approach? I love your energy. We're meant to be. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I think, and I, I love what I've gotten into. I think why the whole sex intimacy desire thing is so interesting is because you get to look at society and be like, what is going on? And that I think that's where you're coming from is like, look at this huge opportunity that just nobody's seeing and all of these yeah. people who have they been taught to just keep their head down and deal with it? Like, why aren't they seeking these answers? You know, and why are these answers new to us? You know, yeah. and we're like, we have all the, we have the, the privilege of having gone to medical school. We have the privilege yeah. of knowing what resources to go to. And we're still having to learn for ourselves yeah. about perimenopause, menopause, aging, what's normal in, as far as sexual desire, what's normal as far as sex in a long-term relationship. Like all this stuff is like, it's out there, but it's really hard to get. So for the average person who doesn't have those resources, like where do you even start? Talk to me about what you've learned or what you have put out into the stratosphere via your podcast, You Are Not Broken, because talking about women's sexual health or parts that hurt, you know, I didn't know that 70% of women experience vulvulodynia, which is pain down there, right? Nobody Mm -hmm. talks about it. We barely get to talk about our period, let alone what's going to happen when we're winding down that part of our life, right? So, you know, you would think that it would be totally he for she because, you know, if men want to have sex, then they need their partners, their female partners to be great with it. So Mm -hmm. what have you discovered from your podcast or illuminated for people? I think there's just so much shame, first of all, right? Like we don't, people live and suffer in silence because of the shame and stigma of like, well, that's your problem. That's not a common thing that happens to everybody, mm-hmm. right? So there's a lot of kind of shame in like not seeking the answers or people do go to a doctor and they don't get the answers. So they think, well, that's the expert. So there must not be anything else. Mm-hmm. So a lot of shame. I think what's been so fun is just normalizing everybody's experience. I've been like, and that's why I love the name of the podcast. Like you're not broken. Like this is just, this is human. We just have human bodies living with human bodies, troubleshooting human bodies. Oh, I love no, that. <laughs> nobody's inherently like, oh, you're the odd one out. You know, like these stories are just repetitive. They're over and over. There's just common things that happen when we're living. And I think the other thing that women do, you know, in the like, in the whole man thing is we give the power away. We're like, well, he doesn't know how to give me an orgasm. Well, he doesn't think that, that there's anything wrong with that. But we have to remember, men didn't get any sex education in this country either. Mm-hmm. So don't give them the power of like, well, they didn't, they never said anything, so it must be fine. It's mm-hmm. like, they don't know, men don't know where the clitoris is any more than where the woman knows where the clitoris is, right? right. And a man doesn't know, like maybe pain's normal. He doesn't know. Or so he we can't, can't perceive it. He's just Yeah, we, thing, so we can't right? give our power away of like, well, he never said, or he never... Like, no, they don't know either. Let's give them some grace too. So is there a way when you're speaking to groups of women outside the broadcasting that you give us the talk? 
you know, like we're supposed to get when we're turning 13 and having our peers, here's the talk, here's yes. the prepare for it. This is here's what you need talk. in your bag. What's your Welcome talk? to my TED talk. Yeah. Um, talk? Use lube. <laughs> this is fric- this is friction inducing activities. Use lube. We wear shoes on the road when we walk because mm-hmm. otherwise it hurts. Yeah. And we don't, we aren't like, well, shoes aren't, na-. that's the whole thing about sex. Well, shoes aren't natural. Cars aren't natural. We shouldn't use them. No, they're tools to make our lives better. <laughs> Right. That's great. So that's what lube is. Give women enough time to prepare to have something enter the vagina. So many people, I love that premature penetration. Don't prematurely penetrate. It hurts. That's also not where women's orgasms are. Women's orgasms are not in the vagina. For the most part, you can get nuanced. But about 70% of women, 70, 80% of women need clitoral stimulation in order to have an orgasm. The other thing is women take a lot longer, just statistically speaking, 30 to 50 minutes. Men, when they put a penis in a vagina, three to five minutes to orgasm. And then classically in our society, we assume that quote unquote sex ends when a man has an orgasm. Where'd that rule come from? Right. Why does that have to be the truth? And so if a man orgasms in three to five minutes and a woman naturally just takes 30 minutes, well, of course, she's not having great sex. Right. Because they stopped it. So to flip it on its head and to say foreplay, which is a bad name because it kind of denotes that that isn't really sex. Mm -hmm. But it's like anything that where you're sharing pleasure between two couples That's sex. That's intimacy. We've defined sex as a penis and a vagina, but certainly a lot of couples don't even have penises. So they're they're still having sex, right? So let's break that definition to get a lot more people satisfied. And if a woman, you know, for all the men out there, if a woman is having enjoyable sex, pain-free sex, she's going to want a lot more sex, right? I think a a big myth about desire is like, I've got pain with sex and I have no desire, It's like, well, desire comes from not having pain, right? You can't even start exploring your desire if you're having boring sex, painful sex, rushed sex, mindless sex. Mm -hmm. So, so much of desire is wrapped into what's the actual quality of the event when you're having it. Um, As far as menopause, perimenopause, the health of the vulva, that's where the prescription estrogen cream, pills, or rings can come in. Because we really, I always tell women, we spend how much billions of dollars on our skincare on our face, and we totally neglect the skincare of our vulva, right? Oh, that is a great framework. It's skin. It's not skin. It's skin. It's just skin. We want healthy skin and and low estrogen skin is tight and painful and not as you know, elastic and forgiving. And so there, until it becomes over the counter, which I don't see happening, you might need to go to your doctor for some vaginal estrogen. It's incredibly safe. So safe, but it's just skincare to have great, wonderful sex. And the other myth about sex is that old people stop having sex. They don't, they just have to work at it. Right. And so like, you know, I'll see people in their late thirties and they'll be like, well, if you can tell me that we could be having sex, you know, and I'm like, you can, yeah, here's your permission slip. I see see people in their eighties having wonderful, best sex of their lives. I see so many women after menopause, best sex of my life. And there's tips and tricks to that. But certainly there's this myth that in our society or in Hollywood or wherever it's coming from, that older people aren't intimate and don't have sex. It's not true. Well, you just I might love, have to do something that you're doing, not doing when you're 18. Well, and I love the, the framing this as it's just like preparation, right? When we're younger and capable of becoming pregnant, we prepare in so well, many people prepare in some way, right? There's a little bit of prepare preparation. So what I'm thinking you're saying is that it's 
just a little bit of preparation, skincare for pleasure. I mean, honestly, if you leave it like that, you'd sell 10 gazillion bottles, right? But totally. Yeah. It, what you I, need. And I wonder if we should introduce a new vocabulary. It's not, as you said, this is your idea. This is not foreplay. This is pleasure players, you know, I don't know what it's going to be called, but if we're saying that that's getting before the event and you're saying the event starts the minute you think about it, then we should create a new word. Yeah. Yeah. And, and there's just so much, I mean, if you look at the data on the quality of sex education in the United States of America, and we think of ourselves as like, oh, we're very educated. We're very advanced society. Our sex education is absolutely horrible. It's fear-based. We do want to prevent disease and we want to prevent pregnancy. Mm-hmm. Rightfully so. But that's a very fear-based way of thinking about intimacy. Yeah. And so now you have these women in happy marriages who have crappy sex lives. They never learned anything about good sex in the first place right? They just learn, don't get a disease and don't get pregnant. Heaven forbid. So there's a lot. And then we give our power to the men too. We're like, well, he never gives it or he just wants to. And it's like, well, he didn't get any good education either. Stop blaming him. Like everybody's uneducated. Well, when a woman comes in your office and, and she gets it, she's like, yes, I need to talk about this, but we've never talked about this. I mean, you know, I've been married a long time now and it's still sometimes hard to say, okay, honey, I just have to tell you this. And so when I first, this is so much information. My children are going to listen to this. We have a blended family of six children. They're going to listen to this, but here goes. When I first started talking to my husband about the things that were happening to me going through menopause, I did not wait until we were in bed. It was, we were having a drink at the pool at our house, you know, because I wanted it to be an environment that was not intimately charged in the moment. I'm like, it's when I told him I had to go on high cholesterol pills, I need some cholesterol preparation. And it was that same kind of, although look what I just did. I framed my issues as a disease and not a natural part of life. See, it's, it's so ingrained, but it's so ingrained. What do, what do you say to women to give them the courage? I mean, it, it wasn't the first time I thought about talking to my husband about it when I actually did. And, you know, he's a loving man. Of course. He's like, well, how can I help you? What should we do? Right. So what do you tell the women when they're afraid to or need the words to start. Yeah. It's not one conversation, right? Mm-hmm. It's plan on it being multiple conversations and mm-hmm. you got to see how it goes and you got to go from there. But I love the, the tone tone has to be good. And then like where you are, right? So don't be in the bedroom, naked, vulnerable. You want to be over coffee or you want to say, let's go out to lunch and talk about our sex life. And you also frame it in a, in a, I, not a you right? So you don't want to blame you. Like you don't give me orgasms. You don't care that I'm in pain. Make it about an I. I would like to enjoy sex more. I'm curious about learning how to bring more passion into my sex life. Um, So make it about yourself, not blaming the other person because you don't want to put up their defenses, right? You don't want to hurt their ego. And then it's a conversation and most people will find that their partner is very curious, willing, and just in the way that men and women think about sex, right? We think about it very, very differently. We have very different needs. And so we can never assume we know what the other person's thinking. And so that's why we have to have communication. And if you look at the people who have the best sex lives, they're having good communication about sex lives. You know, so they're figuring it out and they're talking. And truly, if it comes to the point of you have a partner who truly is disinterested, disengaged, doesn't care about working on the relationship, I'd say that's a concern because the majority of 
of couples, and I, we're being very heteronormative, but same-sex couples, doesn't matter who you're in a couple with, they want to work on the relationship. They want to understand their partner. So I think most people are very afraid of the conversation, but we'll find that it, although it's awkward the first time, it'll get better and they should have a pretty open audience if you come at it that way. Yeah, I like that approach so much. Well, I want to pivot for two and a half seconds and talk about vaginal hormones and vaginal skin. And so I read this book called Estrogen Matters. In my own search for answers, you know, I'm so surprised at how little I knew about this period of a woman's life. So being a curious scholar type person, I started reading. And what I discovered when reading this book, which really summarizes the last 50 years of, of women research concerning hormone replacement in women, and I would encourage anybody listening don't take my word for it. Don't take Dr. Kelly's word for it. Go grab this book. It's written for the lay person. It really go, explains all the research, which has resulted in a generation of physicians, particularly obstetrics and gynecology, not being equipped to prescribe hormone replacement therapy, believing that it will cause heart disease, breast cancer, ovarian cancer, and a various various other badnesses that with a re-examination of the data doesn't seem quite as firm as people once thought. So what it has resulted in though is an entire generation of doctors who have an opportunity to learn more. So how does that play out in the relationship between OB and urology and how, what do you do when somebody needs that or has questions? Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. A hundred percent. We are. We've had a decade to a decade and a half of no hormones. You can actually look at the data and see what happened to orthopedic fractures when they pulled all the women in America off of estrogen. Like, there's fascinating data because on a national level, we pulled women off their hormones. And I think my my vision on that is in ten years, women are. It's going to be like, welcome to fifty. Here's your mammogram. Here's your colonoscopy. And let's see if hormones. you. Let's see if you're a candidate for hormones. <laughs> right. And to flip it around, you know, it's always interesting when we look at the other gender. We don't tell a man with low testosterone to just deal with it. Oh, we don't do that. Mm -mm. No. So to me, it's like you, there's, there's a lot of room to, to work with. I don't do systemic hormones as a urologist. I have a full-time job already. That would be a second full-time job. Mm -hmm. The need is absolutely huge. Yeah. But so what I'll do is my job's the pelvis. I got to make the pelvis feel good because you yeah. can't have sexual desire if the pelvis doesn't feel good. So I work on that and I really kind of push and encourage to be like, okay, before you see me again, you're going to go talk to either your gynecologist or your primary care to see if hormones is right for you. That's exactly what I do because, you know, I don't think I've ever told you this, but my subspecialty with an ortho is sports and my little niche, because I've been around long enough to be here from the very beginning of hip arthroscopy is non-hip replacement hip pain. And so women come to me with this, you know, the pelvis, I don't have to tell you, but anybody listening, the pelvis is this magical black box that I say to my patients, you must point with one finger where your pain is because there's like 92 structures in this inch of you. And right. so many down there doesn't down help there. the specialist. No. And putting your hand all over, I'm like, your, your hip is one finger. So, you know, my patients sometimes get a little frustrated, but when I make them do that and then I listen to them, they will tell me, I always say to my residents, the patient will tell you what's going on if you just listen. But so much of hip pain is actually pelvic floor pain. And it's so hard to differentiate. And people out there might be listening. They're like, the pelvic floor? What does that mean? What is that place? And 
it's all those muscles between the bones of your, and all the urology down there with the, the structures and the muscles that hold up all of our insides from just dropping out of the pelvis. And talk to me a little bit about how your patients describe what is truly pelvic floor pain. How, how do you help patients differentiate between, oh, that's hip arthritis versus, oh, it's your pelvic floor has become weakened or what's been your experience? Yeah. I do the exact same thing as you do, which is super cool to hear is like, I say, take your finger and point <laughs> right, that's right. because down there or where people think their bladder is, mm-hmm. right. People have no idea where their bladder actually is yeah. inside, which is fine. They're, they shouldn't, that's, that's my job. Jobs, right. mm-hmm. But, but you gotta be specific when you tell me down there, I can't help you when it hurts down there. I think the hip, the hip can be the driver of pelvic pain mm-hmm. and then there's pelvic pain in and of itself. And it's really listening to the story and seeing what's going on and seeing kind of what flares your pain? What are you able to do functionally? Can you pee well? Can you poop well? Can you have sex well? Because you have to do all those things through your pelvic floor. And I have a good, I have very good physical therapists who are very good at kind of working up the hip for us. Because mm. I'll see somebody with with sex pain and dyspareunia is the medical term. And I'll send them to the physical therapist and they'll be like, oh my gosh, they've got their left hip is just totally flaring all their symptoms. Mm -hmm. And so they can all be players, you know, and it's, it's fascinating to find people, they get their hip fixed and then they don't have pain with sex anymore. But that, I mean, that's not common. That's just kind of talking about how nuanced it is, but yeah, it's all related. And we don't, we never think about the pelvic floor because you can't see it on a CAT scan, right? And people in America, we are very organ centric people. It's bladder, it's hip. Mm -hmm. And when it's a muscle and a nerve, people have a tough time with that concept. But I think it's the way the, our, even our medical training is, we're very organ specific. So Mm -hmm. nerves, muscles, all those things that hurt, we can't think about them very, very well. And it's hard. And I find that once I even make people point with one finger, then sometimes I say, but what does it feel like? And so it's hard for people to describe. So I give them words, sharp, dull, aching, popping, clicking, catching, throbbing, because to me, each one of those words points me in a different diagnostic direction. Because a hip, a true hip pain is either arthritic and inflamed as this hot, red, throbbing feeling, or it's mechanical, popping, clicking, catching, something's getting caught. Pelvic floor pain is not mechanical, right? So that helps me divide out. And I find in my patients, there's also a common misconception that if they're physically strong, like I'm a sports guy, I take care of a lot of athletes. Why would my pelvic floor be weak? Well, I got to tell you, there's tons of videos of, you know, the box jumping people. I'm having a senior moment. Oh yeah, the CrossFitters. CrossFitters who are so frigging strong, but they jump on a box. Their pelvic floor is so weak. They're peeing all over the box. So just because you're an athlete doesn't mean that everything is as it should be, right? Yeah. And they're little muscles and they're affected by childbirth and they're affected by hormones. And like, you know, it's almost laughable, especially for the, for the fitness people to do pelvic floor exercises because they're so teeny. They're so small. Like these exercises are not like bench pressing your max rep, right? These exercises are teeny and nuanced. And you're like, that's what these muscles need because so many, so much of the time our big muscles take over. So our little muscles don't have to work Mm. and then they get weak. Well, and I want to be conscious of your time. You're a busy surgeon like I am. But before we go, I want you, we started out this conversation talking about the opportunity and the gap between VC funding for femtech in general, fem aging. And if, if you could direct the world on what 
sex tech as it relates to femtech would be? Like VCs, this is what you need to fund now. What would it be? What are the top three things? Fund this type of project. What would it be? Oh, education. Mm-hmm. I think education. And, and the reason is I think so many people, so many women are looking to buy a product to fix their problem. And I'm like, a lot of this just gets fixed with education, right? And personal work and internal work and then mm-hmm. all that desire and orgasm. Like that's all body work, parasympathetic activation, getting your head out of tomorrow and yesterday. And so to me, I'm like, fun. I don't know how you fund that, but people just kind of, they want to just buy a pill to have great sex. And it's yeah. like, no, it's about learning who you are and the body you were given and, and how you connect with your partner. So I think to me, it would be education. That said, I just read a book called sex tech <laughs> by basically a, a person who funds things and mm-hmm. who's interested in that world. And she says the same thing. There's this massive opportunity, but it's very hard to get funded because banks don't want to loan to anything that might be sex because it's really this fine line of like, how do you have wellness and pleasure at home, but you don't cross the line into being exploitative. You don't mm-hmm. cross the line into you know pornography. And so it's really this weird thing because you're like, well, you could exercise at home or you could go to a sporting event. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But when you think about sex, you're like, there's all this kind of ick that can come with it. So it's sure. not funded. It's not researched. But unless you're an IVF baby, you got on this planet because of sex. That's how universal it is. <laughs> That's right. That's right. And you know what? I wonder, you gave me an idea, although I have no capacity to develop it, but I wonder, you know, when in meditation apps, I've been at, I sit on a board of a conference where thankfully it's just I'm so thankful every year I get to be in the presence of Deepak Chopra and he takes us through a meditation, which I have a very hard time with because I can't shut off my brain, but he talks about being present in the moment. And he goes from the top of our heads through every level of our body to our toes so that we feel every place. And I just wonder, Kelly, if it would be a, if you could help calm or some of the other meditation apps stop down there. And get, you know, get everybody. They probably brain. skip over it, don't they? They probably do. It's a big black box. If they stopped there and we were all like thinking about the, you know, because when Deepak Chopra tells us to think about our feet, like our, yeah, you're thinking about your feet tingle. You're very present of your big toe. I mean, I just think it know, works. There might be something there, Kelly. Yeah. <laughs> Reach out to calm, see what they can do for you. <laughs> totally. Oh, I love it. Um, tell me about in your, give me your spin on, I'm a big fitness move. Keep the, I mean, we see old people every day, right? We see old people being successful, quote unquote, being unsuccessful. And one of the secrets to success is movement, weight bearing exercises for women. So just like humor me and let me hear all about you and, and movement and how that is. Cause everybody wants to age well, but nobody wants to exercise. So well, we, have to like, bridge, we have to bridge the gap. That's true. Well, you know what? There has been the consistent thing in my entire career, which is edging on 20 years, which means I have a certain persistence of being here. The myth I've been trying to dispel is that aging is this inevitable decline from some vitality of youth down a slippery slope until for 20 years, we have this morbidity that leads to death, right? For 20 years, we're suffering and getting slower. Well, What is that impression based on? Well, that's based on the fact that at the turn of the century, we were only living until our late 30s, early 40s. 
that's based on the fact that most health studies are population studies, meaning that if you study a group of people, you take a section of the population, and that's what you say happens with aging. Well, what do we know about the population? 68% of our entire population yesterday, today, and hopefully not tomorrow, do not do one minute of purposeful movement a day, meaning they're not getting their heart rate up. They don't exercise. I've stopped using the word exercise. People are so toxic about that word. I've here years, right, called myself a mobility doc because I don't care. Just move, fidget, go to the copier, you know, carry your groceries in on one hand and walk up the stairs. All of it counts because what we know from my original research, I went out when I was young in my career to prove I was right. I was not just going to be a fitness Pollyanna. So we did a bunch of original research that shows we can maintain our bone density with chronic exercise. We can maintain our lean muscle mass, our brain function. We can be psychologically more whole through the tool of mobility. Because what do we know? Our bodies, when you look at our bodies, they're designed to move. I believe that form follows function. When you look at our form, all of our biggest muscles, except for the little ones on the pelvic floor, all of our big muscles are below our belly buttons. If we were not designed to move, we would be like Jabba the Hutt. We would be sessile, like a mushroom with a big base and not much you know, ability to move. So number one, we're designed to move. But what we know is that there's an abundance of literature in every field that getting your heart rate up X amount a week, whether it's 150 minutes of intense exercise or 30 minutes of moderate every day, it keeps our bone strong. It maintains lean muscle mass. Lean muscle mass is the key to healthy aging because muscle is not just moving things. It's metabolically superior to fat. Fat is a noxious metabolic organ. It's just not hanging around in inconvenient locations. It is noxious, releasing chemicals and and too much of uh, sex hormones that cause disease and inflammation, right? So lean muscle mass is metabolically superior. We know mobility stimulates the brain. It maintains the hypothalamus. It supplements the amygdala. All the thinking and memory building places are in our brain. There is nothing that intentional mobility does not augment. And in fact, there is a entire conglomeration of diseases. And I did not make up this term. A researcher out of Columbia, Missouri made it up. It's called sedentary death syndrome. It is the 33 diseases that could be positively impacted by a little bit of mobility every day that are right now killing us. So it doesn't matter what disease you have, mobility will have a positive effect on your health, including your brain. Because I always say, as an academic, as a curious person, the best part of me is not how strong I am. It's the capacity of my brain. And I'm going to do every frigging thing I can to maintain that because that's the worst possible outcome of aging that I can think of. Absolutely. Oh, it's beautiful. I think, you know, especially going to medical school, like muscles are completely neglected. Oh. And now and now we're learning like how highly metabolic they are and how yes. they help regulate insulin. And yes. I'm like, where did all this fun stuff come from? Like this stuff jazzes me up. 
Absolutely. So there's this protein and you're going to go look at it now that I've, or you probably already know. But once I got through observing all these things, I said, I, our bones are better. Our muscles are better. Our brains are better. Our attitudes are better. I said, but what's behind this? I got to go find out. So there's this protein that was actually described in nature about 30 years ago called Clothos. Clothos was the goddess of uh, health. Clothos is a protein that is known in Clothos knockout mice, meaning for those of you out there like, what is she talking about? These mice cannot produce Clothos. So what they do is they're born and then they die young of old age. It's different from progeria. It's a different kind of disease, but it's just they have no ability to make this longevity protein. This protein maintains every body system. Well... The good news is I studied the same master's athletes that I study for my other longevity research and found that people over 70 that exercise or invest in their mobility every day have higher levels of clothos than sedentary 30-year-olds. So they have more longevity protein than sedentary young people. And do you know what stimulates the transcription of the gene that transcribes for clothos? Skeletal muscle contraction. <laughs> right? Amazing. So I know. Look how jazzed I get. And, you know, I left my academic job to come down to a private community job. And now I'm all hyped up about, I got to get back in a laboratory. There's so much work to do. But, you know, maybe my, my voice talking about it and getting VC to support it is working off. Perfect. Absolutely. I mean, that's how I am with mine. Cause I'm like, I actually don't want to be a sex researcher. I want to take the data that's there and I want to tell people about it. Yes. And I'm like, that is, that's a really important role. Right. Right. There's there's if there was more of of those people, the researchers could get their research out more. They're too busy researching and getting grant funds. <laughs> it's funny you say that because I once had a fight with one of the bait, not a fight. She was very unhappy with me because one of our lean muscle mass studies, it was just so revolutionary. I said, you know what? I could bury it in an academic journal that only the most specialized people read 300 people in the whole world. Or I could put it in a journal with a lower impact factor, you know, in academia, people listening, that means how important the, the magazine, the article is in a lower impact factor, but a journal that puts out lots of press releases. And she was unhappy because it wasn't helping her with promotion. But do you know, that article was downloaded more than a hundred thousand times and was written about by all these exercise people. And I am so with you that if this is what I'm doing now, I'm taking the good work that the brainiacs do and publicizing it. I am all about it. Totally. Like what a gift they've given us. And now we get to tell people, cause I think people care. People want to live healthy. They want to preserve their function. And here they're, you know, our society's like buy this pill, buy this supplement, buy this, you know, band that goes around your belly. And it's like, it's so simple. Doesn't mean it's easy. Mm -hmm. But it's simple. You move your body. You be mindful. You don't take neurotoxins, you know, like alcohol and tobacco. Yeah. Yeah. The data on alcohol and breast cancer is astounding and nobody knows about it. It's like this is a neurotoxin that our society has said, it's fine. You deserve it. It's what's it's what moms do, you know, and it's this the risk of breast cancer with one alcoholic drink a day is higher than any risk with estrogen. Same with the risk of breast cancer with obesity, right? There's just being overweight, all of that, of that course, fat. The, the that fat, is, yes. Yeah, is way more risky. And yet here all these women have been scared of over estrogen. 
right? So, Which again, I think is going to change in the next 10 years. But it's like people are hungry for this information and all this stuff that's in that we do all the time, be sedentary, mm-hmm. drink alcohol, mm-hmm. is actually quite risky behavior, but we're not framing it like that. That's it. Oh, we have so much work to do, don't we? Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's awesome. Oh, I mean, the great. best thing about it, to wrap it up on a high note, is women have all the power. We have all right. of the power. We just need to claim it claim and be it, educated it. about it. That's right. Yeah, It's not anybody else's job. I was a general surgeon in, when I was in med school. He said, it's nobody else's job to provide you with your best education. That's your job. Oh, he's so and I, smart. I took it and I was like, it is our job to treat our bodies as healthy as we can. Yeah. To be experts on ourselves. Yeah. I love it. Oh, well, I've loved meeting you. Let's do this more often. Absolutely. So fun. Thank you. Thank you.